Welcome. It's Downtown the Podcast. Good to have you along. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Broadcasting from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we do our daily show, downtown, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio available worldwide at downtownwithrichkimball.com. And uh, this week, just one guest on the podcast. Normally, we have a couple of folks, but this is a pretty special one and a lengthy conversation with a television icon, actor Gavin McLeod. And depending on your age, you may know him best as Captain Steubing from The Love Boat, Murray Slaughter from The Murray T- Mary Tyler Moore Show, or, hey, maybe you go back to his days on McHale's Navy. He's had a, quite a remarkable career on stage, big screen, small screen as well. He's the author of a terrific memoir, This Is Your Captain Speaking. And, uh, Carrie, we we found out that well, we, we kind of knew this in advance, but... Uh, a terrific storyteller, but also just a, a really down-to-earth and pretty uh, pretty emotional guy, but also a man with a tremendous memory of detail. It was incredible what, yeah, what stories he was able to pull out uh, just out of a slight prompt, and and that that was wonderful to, to to be part of. Yeah, such an interesting career because I I grew up with him on Love Boat. I discovered Mary Tyler Moore later, but. Even beyond those sort of, that would be enough for most people's careers, but such a breadth of work that he has done over his career. When you look at that IMDb page, and it's literally every drama that was on TV in the 1960s, Mm -hmm. he was was in everything. And uh, he was just an absolute treat for us to talk to. And so he's it. Our one guest this week. Gavin McLeod with us on Downtown. We want to talk a lot about the Mary Tyler Moore Show, but, but want to get some background uh, on you as well, because you've, you've got such a fascinating story. And, and it all began in, in Pleasantville, New York. And, and am I right that you did your first play, your first acting in kindergarten? I was four years old. Oh, yes. It was a Mother's Day play. <laughs> Do you remember what part you played? Yes, I was the lead. I was a cute little boy. I had a lot of hair and every. I won a charming child contest. I'm kind of embarrassed. My mother, my mother had that picture in a frame until the day she died, and, <laughs> which was when she was 97 years old. Now, and so I, I had a lot of hair. I was cute. I was in the kindergarten, Roselle Avenue School, which is now a condo, a condo complex, and. Uh, I don't remember my teacher's name in the kindergarten, but it was a Mother's Day play, and I was this little boy that wanted to get something for his mother, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any money or anything else, and so I said, oh, I'm go- I'll am i go through the forest, and I'll find someone to help me, and so <laughs> all my my little classmates were different animals in the forest, and the biggest kid was uh, Jack Moore. I remember him so well. And uh, he was the biggest kid, and he must have been, I was always the youngest, so he was either five or six, but he was big and rotund. And uh, he said, yeah, well, and he played a bear. <laughs> and he said, the thing, the thing you should give your mother, and it won't cost you anything or anything, is a wonderful bear hug. <laughs> well, I jumped up and down and was so excited about that. <laughs> and I went back 
and saw each kid, another who played previous animals, all the, telling them, I'm all going to get my mother. And and uh, Barbara Borch has played my mother. She was my girlfriend in high school years later. And uh, I gave her a big hug, and uh, the audience went crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we were little kids. We hardly knew who we were. And uh, I heard applause for the first time. And... Uh, I talk about that in my book. I wrote a book. This is your captain speaking, and it's a wonderful and book. And I so I hear I hear uh, that applause. That's the first time I heard applause. And I guess in my little mind, and it meant somebody liked me. They liked me, and if that's what it took to be liked, I want to do more of that. And so I was in plays from that moment on until here I am. I just finished my last play about two years ago down here. And I don't know if it's going to be my last one, but I'll be 90, you know. And so <laughs> a lot of those creative things are not as forceful as they used to be. Now, your first Broadway appearance was in Hatful of Rain with Ben Gazzara, Shelley Winters. And you still remember your one line. I know you do. Back up, Johnny, back up like a mule. <laughs> yes, and you know, that's when, <clears throat> that was such a thrilling experience. I, I, I was the only guy in there that, uh, what happened was, it was a big smash. Walter Winchell called it the best play in 10 years. It was an actor's studio project. Everybody in it was from the actor's studio. Mike Gazzo wrote it, and it was called Johnny Had a Yo-Yo. And Jay Julian saw it, and said, I think it, it should be, we can make some money with this. And so he eventually got Shelley. They needed a big name, and they, and they got the theater, and that's when they opened, and the reviews were sensational. I was working as a cashier in Jim Downey's restaurant in New York, and so I knew all the people, all the actor studios, actors used to hang out there and everything, and I studied with Frank Cassell, who directed that play, and he was Lee Strasberg's right-hand man in the studio. And so what happened was Tony Francioso played the brother, Harry Guardino, one that studied him, and his reviews were, it was a very colorful character. And uh, he got movie offers. <clears throat> so after a couple of months, he was going to go and make movies. And uh, Harry Guardino moved up to that part, the brother Paulo, if you know that show. And they had, everybody moved up, and then they had an opening to, to understudy and to play the uh, man in the hallway, he was called. He was just called Man. And uh, I auditioned, and uh, and I got it. And uh, that was that was one of the greatest theater moments I've ever had. When Jay Julian, the producer, came in, I was I was behind a cash register in Jim Downey's restaurant doing work, and he said, well, kid, he said, you got your first Broadway part. I said, holy mackerel. <laughs> Oh man, I, I I couldn't I couldn't sleep I couldn't anything else and that was the beginning of it I was with that for about a year and a half and ironically last night on the television here I just saw Vivian Blaine in Guys and Dolls I was watching that too on TCM yeah and Vivian replaced Shelley Winters and that's when Steve McQueen came in there were a lot of replacements and then we went on the road with Peter Mark Christman we had a, I was with that for about a year and a half I think. And I finally came to, we played L.A., we were on the road, we were in New York for a while, and for months, and then went through the whole summer, 
and then we were on the road, and we played San Francisco, then L.A., and uh, in L.A., I got an offer to do a movie play. I was playing a, a, a drug pusher, uh, playing a drug pusher, and I said, well, but I can't leave the play. I wouldn't do that. I had a contract, and so after we closed in Boston years later, because uh, we had some replacements come in, and uh, Diane uh, Brewster's uh, Diane uh, Ladd. Diane Ladd. Diane Ladd came in, and she was only like twenty, twenty-one years old then. And uh, she played put ski on the road. And uh, uh, McQueen left. Yeah, and so Ben came back in the play. Ben Gazzara finished up, and then we finished up in Boston. And then I came to the. I had that one offer to do the movie, so I told my wife, I said, I think I have some action on the West Coast. <laughs> so uh, we had one friend that knew one agent, Lou Irwin, and uh, Lou Irwin said he would see me. So I said, it's worth it's worth it, because I, I, I had a ball. I, I, I've been bald since I was 21. And I bought a secondhand hairpiece. That's in my book too. <laughs> and that's how I got my first Broadway play and off Broadway and those because of the, somebody else's hairpiece <laughs> that I paid one hundred and twenty-five dollars for. And uh, so I finally went to the West Coast, and uh, I went to that one agent. And who do I? The first one I meet in the waiting room is Ted Knight. Except wow. he wasn't Ted Knight then. He was still a uh, Thaddeus Kanopka, right? No, he was still, he was always Ted Knight. <laughs> I, you know, but, but he was always, but he wasn't Thaddeus Kanopka. But uh, he, oh, he had a great story, too, about his life. I, he, I just loved him to piece this. Anyway, so he tells me, hi, kid, how nice to see you. I said, hey, I just come in town. I don't know what to do or anything. He says, the first thing you got to do is you got to get a business manager. I said, but I don't have any money. He says, I don't have any money either, but I've got a business manager. I said, things are strange on the West Coast. <laughs> and and I got that. He and I had Sam choke up that same business manager for years and years. And Ted and, Ted and I became instant friends. And we had been friends since 1957. And then Mary started in 19... When did Mary start? In Fall of 1970. But you knew... We're talking. Yeah, we're talking with Gavin McLeod here on Dantum. You knew Mary because you had done the Dick Van Dyke show several years earlier. Yeah, I did two of those. I did Empress Carlotta's Necklace, and uh, people really like it. Still, still get mail about that. And then I did another one, which ironically I never got a chance to shoot because I had an infection and I was in the hospital. Well, we were shooting it. It was it was a very cute story about. Rosemary and the, the delicatessen owner downstairs, and he used to be, have a crush on Rosemary, and he used to send her notes in the middle of sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, oh, can I see you? Oh, it's very cute. And so, and we rehearsed, and then we had, a, it was a holiday, so we had like a four-day weekend, and I got violently ill. They put me in the hospital, and I was unable to shoot it, and I was sick. I was unable to shoot that show. But I worked with Carl Reiner a lot, you know, and uh, that whole group. And that's where I met Mary on the first one. And so when I, when after I came back from doing Kelly's Heroes, I started rehearsing Carousel the Musical, and I got a call from my agent about the Mary Tyler Moore show. I said, oh, is she doing a show? 
I said, I love her. Who doesn't, you know? And he said, well, they want to see you. They want to send you some scripts. I said, oh, fabulous. So they sent me two scripts. Um, one was Rhoda's mother and one was the pilot. And the writing was just, I was on the floor. It was so good. But they wanted and you I, for Lou Grant, right? That's what it said. It said on the script, Gavin, for the part of Lou Grant. And I read that. And I, uh, because I had worked with her, I think if I hadn't worked with her, I might have felt different about it. Uh, I said, I wouldn't believe myself being her boss. I'm more of a contemporary. I just, I, I wouldn't believe myself. If I wouldn't believe myself, I would expect an audience to believe myself. So what else could I play in that? And I knew I couldn't play uh, Ted. I couldn't play that character. Uh, but Murray... He didn't have too much to do, but he had some very kind of cynical, kind of funny, biting lies and stuff. I said, well, maybe I could do that. Kind of... So when I went, in, I went in, I met Jim and Alan and that fabulous woman from CBS, Ethel, Ethel Winant. Ethel Winant, yeah. Oh, yeah, she was great. I did a lot of plays for her out on the West Coast. But anyway, she produced... And so I, I, they said, well, you know, how was the shoot? They knew I had just come back from Yugoslavia. And I said, that's okay, but I'm, I'm doing Carousel now and all that stuff. And so I read the Lou Grant, and I got my laughs and everything else. But, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think it was right for me. So I had my hand on the door, and I said, you know, you guys, I said, I really like that character of Murray. Oh, yeah, but he's supporting. I said, I don't care. I said, yeah. uh, he said, you want to read something, Jim? And I, I said, sure. So I read some of those lines and that they had in those two scripts, and uh, they were laughing and just enjoying themselves. Okay, well, thanks for that. See you later. I got to go to rehearsal. And so as I went outside, uh, I saw Ed pacing up and down, Ed Asner. So he was going in right after me. And so I went to rehearsal, and that afternoon, my agent came over. It was just a few hours later, and he signaled me to come out, and I eventually saw him, and he said, Gavin, and they want you for the Mary Tyler Moore show. I said, oh, Alex, wow, isn't that great? I said, do you know what part? He said, is there a guy named Murray in that? I said, yes, there's a guy named Murray. And I was Murray for seven years. And that's when that's when a lot of stuff happened for a lot of us. Well, I, Seven I, years on the Mary Tyler Moore show. For my money, one of the great television shows of all time. And I have to tell you, Murray Slaughter might be my favorite character uh, in television history because it's so funny, but so, so compassionate. I don't know that there's ever been a more decent character in television than Murray Slaughter. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mean the, the, the show isn't about Murray, so how are they going to write any shows about him? So they finally had the idea of having a wife and having him be every man, having him be the, the, the brown bagger that never gets much attention but puts his time in and has families and things. And that's when they brought Joyce in. Yep. And uh, she played Marie. And... We kind of exemplified a lot of stuff that was going out there in the reality of the world, <laughs> you know. Uh, I remember one. I remember one show. Where Murray was uh, working late and all, and she thought that he was cheating on her, and 
The thing was, he had another job driving at night to make money to buy her something. And uh, I don't know, Murray, Murray, a lot of the mail I get from people is they like his cynical wit, but they like they they mention he and Betty White a lot. And then they mention uh, how he exemplified the brown bagger. I mean, every every city I used to travel for uh, the network went on off times and I would go to different cities, the newsrooms in the cities. And they were all Murray's. All the, there was a Murray at every 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 town we ever went to, and we got to L.A. When I did one in L.A., the guy says, "My name is even Murray," he said, and he and he was the writer, you know. And he brought they brought they brought their lunch and brown bags just like he did. They had families trying to hold things together, and they were like the voice of the news. That they were the ones that were writing it all. Much more to come with Gavin McLeod after a quick break. And a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. More of our conversation with actor Gavin McLeod. Talking Mary Tyler Moore, The Love Boat, and lots of other good stuff here on Downtown, the podcast. I want to talk about a few very special episodes, I I think, that that feature Murray. And one is when you became briefly Sue Ann's producer. Oh, that was a show and a half, yeah. (laughs) I want to tell you how great Betty White is. When you want to talk about that, I'll tell you. Oh, please do. Okay. Well, you know, she she emasculates him. He wants to make extra money to buy something for the kid or his wife or something, whatever he's doing. And he gets, he becomes her assistant. And so she does everything to emasculate this guy. And the truth of the matter is at the end of the show, when he, she's got him in a bridal gown, <laughs> this poor guy in a bridal gown, and the the cake comes in. And he picks her up, sits her in the cake, and she goes down on the floor. Well, the truth of the matter is, we only had one cake. We had to do that in one take wow. in front of an audience. And uh, they didn't have a second cake around in case anything happened. Nobody ever thought <laughs> what could happen to a cake. And so Betty, no matter what happened, she had to ride that cake down between her legs. <laughs> and I said, uh, I, I used to kid her about I said, you practiced your whole life for this one scene, haven't you? <laughs> she's great. You know, she's 98 now. She's still one of the fabulous people of all time. And anyway, so, yeah, so what? this is what happened. So the audience is there. We've never had a chance to practice with the real cake. I lift her up and sit her on it, and she rides it down. Well, we, it was we just, and then we talked it through. Now the audience is there. Now the show is getting near its climax, and he finally can't take it anymore. He lifts her up, puts her in the cake, and she rides it down, and the audience went crazy. 
little did we know because of not being able to rehearse for the real cake when I sat her down on the table with the cake on the she hurt her back oh. wow and she still she's still so when it was over I said oh you know, listen to that. I mean, all that stuff. She said, I think I hurt myself. I said, what do you mean, Betty? She said, I hurt myself when you put me on the table. You know, we never had the cake to rehearse with, but she never stopped. This is what I mean. You mm-hmm. talk about a trooper. She rode that cake down like <laughs> <laughs> she was pouring tea for the Queen of England. There's a great line <laughs> from, from Pajama Game that I love. Where uh, where they make pajamas, and she says, "Oh, she's wonderful," and she says, "She can she can sew a button on a fly like she's pouring tea for the Queen <laughs> of England." Well, I always think Betty does a, a lot of things like she's pouring tea for for the Queen of England, and she is uh, she was just wonderful to work with. She's one of the best of all time. Yeah, but she really got hurt. <laughs> she really got hurt. Nobody ever knew it. I didn't know it until later. We're back when when but the show is over about six minutes after what the incident happened. Uh, but you would never know it. And, uh, yeah, we still got a lot of mail on that show. Uh, I think one of the funniest things regarding Betty and her is when she was sick. And uh, Ted goes to see her. I think Lou and I would at least take a turn seeing her. And Ted, Ted comes in. When you see the bedroom for the first time? Yes, and, and he, he's got his hat on, and he looks up at the mirror and starts doing some business with his hat, looking up at the mirror there, the audience is finally realizing what's going on. And then with the bed, that the, 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 uh, vibrating bed. <laughs> oh, Betty, Betty's like, that was so wonderful. And you know, she and Alan used to come to see our show every Friday night. Right. Cause uh, he and Grant were very good friends. And whoever thought that she'd be a, a regular and be Sue Ann Nivens, be this classical character. And then I played with her. She did a love boat. She and Alan did a love boat together. And then he passed. And then she came back on with I, to a classical thing. She and, she and Carol Channing played sisters on the love boat. And they did one number together that was sensational. Yeah. One of the great episodes of the show, and I think in all of television history, is chuckles bites the dust and no doubt about oh. it. No matter where I go, that's always mentioned. I go to conventions. Uh, not even. I mean, they're actually uh, Christian conventions, and we're sitting around having dinner, and ultimately somebody brings up chuckles bites the dust. An absolutely brilliant episode. But as I understand the the episode before you, well, I think your last rehearsal, it was what four or five minutes short. And that sort of gave you and Ed free reign to really use those those zingers about chuckles. Oh yeah, that one line. You, uh, yeah, <laughs> Mary starts laughing in the room. He says, "What's so funny?" He said, "It could have been a catastrophe." He says, "You know how hard it is to stop after just one peanut." <laughs> well, you know, come and the audience. So when when we finally had all the laughs. We waited for when the laughs came, everything came. It was perfect timing. I'll tell you what show was very meaningful, too, was the last one we ever did. When we had to say goodbye and uh, Mary closed that door for the last time. And that was seven years, you know, and all of us had been 
working most of us our lifetimes, making livings and all that, but never in a show like that, never with that kind of a love, that kind of creativity, that kind of joy. And what she did for Women's Lib, I mean, there's very few women you meet in television that said they weren't influenced. I mean, when we, when we finally did uh, Oprah's show, Oprah went, I sat next to Oprah and Mary came in. Oprah went crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah. When Mary showed up in person. Did you ever see that one? I did, and she was so moved by that and oh, even oh, had her own that, version that she, that she shot. That was, yeah. that was great. And I love you know, the message that you all left behind on the soundstage where you, you, there's a plaque there that reads, On this stage, a company of loving and talented friends produced a television classic. That really says it all. It's very meaningful. I went back to do... Uh, that 70s show, I did the one with uh, Dick Van Patten, and then they did one with Mary and me, and then we took pictures under that plaque. Yeah, because that was the same soundstage that we did our show in all those years, but then the 70s show, they had more sets, so they, it was even larger, but it was uh, same dressing room and all that, and it brought back a lot of memories. Yeah. I, I understand, too, that uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite episodes is when Murray... Uh, believes that he's in love with Mary, and it was, it was such a beautiful episode. And, and one of those lines of Murray's uh, was what uh, they used to wrap up uh, Mary's memorial service when she passed. How did you know that? I did my research, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I did that. Uh, John Tinker, Grant's youngest son, is a very good friend of mine. And he used to go up here and his wife to see Mary when she was ill. And he would tell me how she was. He would call and tell me. Because he was in North Carolina and she was up in Connecticut. And uh, and when she passed, he told me about that. And Patty and I. And, uh, and then after the funeral, he called me and he was weeping. And he said, Gavin, you have to hear this. I said, I don't know if I'm if I can take it, John. Mm-hmm. It's very emotional. I mean, she was such a wonderful leader and a wonderful person, and we just loved her. And he said, but you, this is what I want to tell you. There are very few people at the funeral. Um, they just showed her body once in New York, and she was going to be buried the next day in Connecticut. And her husband was Jewish, so they bury you fast. And he said, so there was about maybe seven of us there. And Bernadette Peters was there, who she was a very good friend of Mary's. They had an animal thing together that they they did to support animals and all that. And said, uh, as they were lowering her casket into the ground. They said one of your lines. I said, John, what could I have said as Murray? He said, Bernadette said this. Mary, everyone knows how beautiful you are on the outside, but I know how beautiful you are on the inside. And those were the last words said over her when they 
she descended into the earth there. I was so moved by that. I was so moved by that. And then I remember when I told her that, I remember that show when I think he, I think he's 40 or 45 years old. He wakes up and he's, he's, I think this is some of, some of the stuff in the series that, we, that I said now. And I realized I was in love with Mary. I thought I was in love with Mary. And I remember he, I had to tell her in this one scene, and you know, of all the years, what it was, seven years on that show, I got more mail on that episode than any uh, I'd, ever, I'd ever done. And most of the mail said the guys, the guy that were written by men, the same thing happened to them in the office. They spent more time in the office than they did at home, and they really felt they were in love with the girl they worked with in the office. So they identified so much with that episode of Murray and Murray and Mary. We're talking with Gavin McLeod here on downtown. Well, we, we have to talk about the love boat. Not everybody gets a second act and, and that became such a huge hit. Nine seasons. Uh, you got to be uh, not just the star of the show, but also one of the wonderful things about it is that uh, Aaron Spelling gave you the flexibility to continue to do the stage work that you love so much. I know, and he was so wonderful to work for. As a matter of fact, when we we made the pilot, and <clears throat> I thought it was terrific, but they said that somebody said, "Oh, they had made it, made it once before, and nobody went for it." I said, "Well, maybe they'll go for it this time. I don't know." And I had worked with Bernie Capel on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and I saw all of his work on Get Smart and so forth. He was a gifted actor. And so I, I like the whole idea, three different stories with happy endings, because I, I love happy endings. I like to feel good when things are over. And so uh, I met with Aaron, and because uh, I, I had other, after the Mary Tyler Moore show, the show is so hot, you have offers for other series because they think you're going to bring in an audience. And I had two other series that are offered at NBC, and one was Andy Griffith's producer. I went to see him just before I saw Aaron that same day. Aaron Rubin, he was a fabulous guy. And they all had, there were three different shows. One was about these guys that had, let me say, throw their hands up in the society and they they want to live in these, in these homes that keep you alive downtown L.A. Uh, for a lot of alcoholics and things and who, who people who haven't achieved anything in life. And they criticize everybody for their accomplishments. It was too negative for me. Mm-hmm. Another one was a cowboy show with Jeff Bridges, and it was like Murray only in a cowboy suit. <laughs> <clears throat> Another one was an hour show about the depression in the United States, and I it was in Pittsburgh, and I was the father. And in one hour, there wasn't even a snicker of a laugh. So I said no, and then my agent said they had this love boat. Aaron Spelling once. So I said, have you read it? And he said, yes. I said, what do you think about it? And this is the truth. He says, I think it sucks. You want to read it? <laughs> sure, I want to read it. So uh, they sent it to me. Patty and I, I brought it down. I had a little place in Palm Springs, and she looked at it first. And she came out, and she says, Gavin, I only read 20 pages. I want to tell you I really like it, and you're going to be the captain. This could be something. So I read it, and the interesting thing about the pilot, they had two funny 
stories, but the third story was about an old Jewish guy, and this is what really got me, about this old Jewish guy who was very, very ill, and he wants to be buried in the cemetery in Long Island, but there's not enough space. So he says, I'll go on the ship, I'll die, they'll throw me overboard, and that'll be it. Hmm. And so Phil Silvers played that. Wow. But what happens was, in the real story, when we finally shot it, uh, he comes on the ship thinking, oh, he's going to die, but he meets this woman. And life starts in for him again. And uh, it was, oh, what's her name who did, um, oh, Jimmy, James Whitmore's wife. She was a wonderful, wonderful stage actress. She played this part, and uh, they danced together, and all of a sudden he has, he feels like he's alive again, and he feels good, and they're talking about the future and things, and just before they get into port when they're home, she goes to his room, and he's dead. Well, that got me, and... uh, uh, you know, I said, I'm Irish, I, try, I, I, I cry at the drop of a hat, and I, <laughs> I cried over that. I said, well, if he can make you laugh at two shows and cry at another one, that's good entertainment. And uh, so Aaron said, that's exactly what we want to do, and that's what I signed on. And so I tested with, they didn't have a Julie McCoy, and I tested with 11 actors, uh, Dick Kynan directed all those tests with these actresses from all over the world, or stage actresses. They were all wonderful. Anybody could have done it, but they weren't happy with the girl. In fact, when we all got together, all the guys for the first reading, we didn't have Julie McCoy. And Aaron Spelling's wife, Candy, said there was a girl that did one day on Charlie's Angels. They wanted what they called a today girl. <laughs> and so they, they, they looked at Lauren, Cindy Tweez, and that's it. She was waiting on tables. The next day, she was the star of a television series, and that was the beginning of that. And that's and what happened was we make the pilot, and then Debbie Reynolds calls me. She's doing Andy Get Your Gun in San Francisco, Gala Champions directing, and uh, and then she's coming to L.A. with it. It's going to be a long run. I said, oh, my God. And so I went to see them. I did a couple of numbers. And they wanted me to do it. And I said, oh, Aaron, how can... He said, "He said, all right, you got to do it. He said, you have to do it, so we'll do both. So what we did for the first couple of months, I uh, I would shoot, be shooting in the love boat, and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, one of his drivers would drive me to LAX. I got on a plane, I'd fly to San Francisco, Somebody would meet me, usually James Mitchell, the wonderful dancer, choreographer, who was uh, Gower's assistant, drive me to the stage. They'd have food for me. I'd do the show. I'd fly home. My wife used to say, there's a man that gets in my bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and leaves at 6. I hope to God it's my husband. So I'd have to get up to do the series. And so they did that for five days a week. The weekends I could stay in San Francisco. And so then we came to L.A. We were a big hit down there. W was very good in the hard Fresnel. Oh, some some wonderful B.B. Osterwald, uh, some wonderful Art Lund. Great, great performers were in that show. And Gower directed it beautifully. So that was that. That was the beginning of the of the love vote for me. 
Well, and you worked with so many talented people on the show, including uh, well, old friends uh, like Shelley Winters and Ernest Borgnine. But I, we had a listener send us a picture and, and wanted to know if you could explain what it was about. And it was a picture of you as Captain Steubing with Andy Warhol. Oh, yes. Andy Warhol came on our show together with uh, <laughs> The Temptations and uh, oh, a very... F- <laughs> it's and a very famous wrestler. I forget what his name was, <laughs> but he was the most famous wrestler at that time. They were the guest stars wow. for the week. <laughs> and you, have- Andy, Andy Warhol. Yes, he and I. Um, my uh, Doug Kramer, who was our executive producer, had a big, big per, uh, party for him at his house before we started shooting. And a lot of people in the theater came and everything. I mean, Andy Warhol, he was very shy and very quiet. And then they had the idea of he and I should be doing and the kind of the picture that the picture was on the outside. There's been a lot of magazines. Andy's got a book out called The Party. And uh, there's pictures of us together in it and uh, <laughs> his experience. He's very quiet and shy. I spent one lunch hour taking pictures of him. He was in black. And I was in white, in a white uniform, saluting. And that was on the cover of a lot of things, L.A. Magazine and all that jazz. And, yeah, and I met him. He was, he was he were very quiet, very shy. He was surrounded with some of his other friends who were more alive. <laughs> and uh, we eventually, when I did uh, Gigi in Pittsburgh, the Civic Light Opera, uh, we went to the, the, the Warhol Museum. Because that's where he's from, Pittsburgh, and his museum is just fabulous with the artwork and the history of, of his kind of stuff. It was, it was kind of yeah. So Andy Warhol, <laughs> yeah, and uh, but he was not a great conversationalist. He didn't talk <laughs> a lot, but you you can see he was clocking everything. He was a very smart kind of guy. You've you've and, maintained uh, this uh, relationship with Princess Cruises for all, all these years. And, and did I see that you were you were part of a big event uh, back in February? Setting a, a Guinness would, record for renewing marriage vows, is that right? Yes, we we just did that before the coronavirus hit. It was in February when we went out, uh, uh, we went to Florida, and we were on one ship. And in order to break the record, it was numbers. And so we had to do it on two other ships simultaneously. And it was, uh, our, our ship was packed out with people. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, we had done it once before, renewing wedding vows, but never of this proportion. And uh, that's what we did. We broke the Guinness Book of Records of renewing wedding vows on a cruise ship <laughs> because we had to do the three ships simultaneously. It was, it's hard to, because uh, the ships, another ship was in the Caribbean with us in a different area. We never saw it. Another one was in Mexico. So it was different hours, and they had a judge on each ship, and it was very, very official. And it was very. <clears throat> Very moving for a lot of people. I met a lot of interesting people. Some I've just I've just written to again who have, who corresponded with me. You meet interesting people on cruises who've had fabulous lives. And uh, Joyce and I have talked about Joyce. You know, but played my wife on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Getting back to that, we had Joyce uh, on a few months ago talking about playing Marie. Yeah, she's absolutely fabulous. Well, they've talked to us, the local NBC. 
outlet here has talked about us doing a radio program together. Well, you guys are neighbors uh, in Palm Springs, right? Well, she, yeah. Well, I'm in I'm in I'm in Palm Desert, and she's in the next community over. She's not here now. She's gone for the three months for the summer. She lost her husband two years ago, and it was right. very sad. Roger, when he mm-hmm. died, it was. She's wonderful. I'm crazy about her, and I I watch Perry Mason's to see her all the time. I watch <laughs> Perry Mason almost every night to see my friends who are no longer here, and. Uh, Patty said to me, don't you ever get tired of it? I said, no, I don't. Because I loved Raymond. He came into the love boat two years later, even after Ironsides. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I've been blessed with uh, having a wonderful life, exceeding much more than I ever thought I would ever. I thought I would just do a Broadway play and then just go teach someplace because I have some degrees. And, but, uh that's not the way it worked out. Oh, we're glad it didn't. Uh, Gavin, thank you so much. I, I have been a fan of your work for so many years. It's been an absolute delight to talk with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rich. Thank you so much. And that was so much fun. Gavin McLeod telling some stories and you know, whether it was remembering details of the Mary Tyler Moore episodes, the, the Andy Warhol episode of Love Boat. But I think what was most remarkable was him remembering so many details about his first play when he was in kindergarten some 85 years ago. That was impressive. (laughs) Co-stars, names, and yeah, that was, uh, it sounded like a wonderful little story they told as well. that was great. And uh, what what a wonderful guy to talk with. Gavin McLeod joining us here on Downtown the Podcast this week. Our thanks to him, and thanks to you for being with us as well. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.